0: Hi, Christian. (laughs) That's not how we're going to start the show, Joe. That's not how we start the show.
1: I know that you feel that that is not how we are going to start the show. And let me apologize to everyone out there uh, who thinks I sound funny. It's because I have a head cold and a chest cold. That's why I sound funny.
0: Now, um... Er than usual. Do you... (laughs) Are you one of those people who sounds, like, better when you get a cold? That's for others to judge. All right, we'll wait for listener feedback. We get any feedback this week, Joe? Or let's forget about the fact that we we had an unplanned gap week.
1: Yeah, and I don't recall any. I don't recall any particular. But you're you're better about recalling the feedback stuff. We did get a we did get a great note with some suggestions for background music or intro music. Yeah, we don't have intro music. We don't. Are no, we th- going to get some intro music
0: or outro music? I doubt it. Why w- is that? We w- could. B- when you're just sitting when you're just sitting around talking to people, do you get the urge to put on some music? Sure, yeah actually you do I mean it you? depends on who i 'm talking to <laughs> and what volume I want to add and that kind of stuff, but you know sure um, we also got some we got some really uh, a really nice shout out i don 't have it in front of me right now, so uh, um, on on Twitter and someone on their blog introduced us as uh one of the must listen law podcasts. Cool. Did you see that I did give a little that. review so it was you know this is this person I think feels that maybe there 's a little bit too much banter like our other mm. uh, and, and other people i' run this, but other people strongly disagree, we're not going to please everybody, right but he, yeah this person he listens to it, I think guess you know at a slightly higher speed and and just skips over the banter part, huh like the first ten minutes he says so doesn't even yeah. need to listen to it,
1: and then the rest of it is reduced to about five minutes, and then that's good. that person's listening to a very compressed <laughs> version, but why we, I like that we celebrate the old world culture of banter. <laughs> I like that i'm pro banter, Brigham, are you pro or anti banter? I
2: uh, I am pro banter, but I'm a little taken off guard. I the um, the agreement that I signed with Christians suggests <laughs> you would play. I'm ready to rumble when I was introduced. <laughs> um, you can
0: be kind of the Iron Sheik. You want to come in with some like wrestler style? Nice, like Eye of the Tiger. You can dub that shit in, right? Yeah, Joe. Now I've got to bleep stuff out. Why? This is a family podcast. Uh, People don't want to be riding around in the car with their kids listening to you know. Kids are gonna be yelling to turn this stuff off anyway if that happens. But you um, can dub that poop in, right? Yeah, I can dub all kinds of stuff in. Okay, good. I can I can work all the magic. You know, that's how this podcast gets down to such a distilled nugget of whatever the heck it is. Yeah. Um is your wizardry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh um I had something else to say. Oh yes, uh program note. Brigham, do you mind holding on one second? Sure. Okay. so because 'cause we've got a fantastic guest this week. I just wanted to pre I wanted to say two things. One, next week we have a fantastic mystery guest. Okay. I'm not going to say who it is, but I think people are going to want to tune in. I agree. Um, secondly, we are going to be special guests on This Week in Law next week. We are. If all goes
1: well. Right. If and by special well. guests, we simply mean guests.
0: Yes. And I think, I think they even do it live. And it's, uh, they do. And it's video. Who knows? You know, so if, if the technical details work out, we will be live on This Week in Law next Friday. Yes, um, Friday the, whatever it is thirteenth, I think it's the thirteenth. It is Friday the thirteenth. Yeah. So
1: what could go wrong? Proving, uh, and we will prove, or at least I will. Uh, I will give all of America, no, all of the globe, uh, because you know the web is a worldwide communications medium. Proof that this face is made for radio.
0: <laughs> are, you, are you pointing to your own or to mine? To my own. Okay. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're the same on that score. Um, let's move on with today's, today's show. Let's. So we got a big one. We got a lot to talk about. <clears throat> Today we got uh, Brigham Daniels with us. Brigham is a law professor at uh, Brigham Young University and a uh, cl- law school classmate of mine. Oh, I did not know that, yes. that. You actually went to school together. We went to school together. That's where we met. Uh, both interested in environmental law uh, in law school. Um, cool. Brigham did not graduate with me because I think you took off to go to, uh, to, go to Duke. And then came back, right, Brigham?
2: Uh, I, I took a year off to litigate a case with the Sierra Club.
0: Mm. That's what it was. And you went to Duke after law school, right? Because you also right. have a, uh, is it a PhD in environmental?
2: It, what is it? It's a PhD in environmental policy.
0: Okay. So you you know some things. <laughs> <Is> that, well. Because <laughs> uh, this, is, this is, you know, this is. Uh, if you want to take issue with that, now's the time to take issue with it. <laughs> yeah. When yeah. we're at the start. You know, so we wanted to have you on the show. Uh, I, I've wanted to have you on the show since, since the beginning. Let's be honest about this. But um, big news this week, and I thought we could talk about climate change. Um, this week is—what's today? Is today the 6th, right? Friday the 6th of June, 2014. Yes. Or um, 2014, that, as they now say. Earlier this week, the Obama administration issued the proposed rules um, for existing power plants— um, carbon dioxide emissions, and uh, so this is principally coal burning uh, electric generation plants. Those would be the ones most affected, as I understand. So, principally, those right. are the ones we care so, about. Yeah. So that's what's in the news, and I kind of want to understand that and talk about it. And ta- I want to talk more generally about climate change, um, Brigham. I know you've done some some work on this um, in in various capacities, um, and um, some work just on collective action problems more generally. I don't know even how to start. Um, I I usually start by saying I don't know how to start. <laughs> so I, Brigham, what do what do you think? What, first of all, what do you think about these new rules? Let's start maybe specifically, and maybe we can get more broad.
2: Uh, I, I, it, it is a step forward. Um, the uh, most affected plants are those that were uh, those that are forty years old. We have about a thousand power plants, uh, coal-fired power plants online in the U.S. Uh, a little bit more than half of them. Are more than forty years old, um, so this is this is going to this is going to require some pretty significant changes for those plants. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you kind of look at the bigger picture of carbon uh, emissions in the United States uh, and worldwide, uh, particularly, it, it it's just a, it's it's a baby step along the way, uh, although an important one.
0: My back of the envelope calculations that i either that i saw online or i did myself i verified it are, are that uh, this is if it goes into effect and, and comes off perfectly and, and we meet our targets it'll reduce global carbon emissions by about one percent yeah and
2: people are sitting that, between one and two percent in the, at the optimistic end
0: okay and obviously we need a lot more than that to get to get the job done um Uh, to avert kind of the worst of of climate change. Uh, But do you want to paint us a picture? I mean, do you know what we need? Uh, Is this at all, you know, is there a chance that this will... I'm kind of hedging because my sense is if we can't do at least this, we're totally screwed. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is a very modest... I mean, it seems big. Yeah, go
1: ahead. Let me ask it in a different way, which is, okay, so you say it's a, a baby step in the right direction. So what are some of the other steps that could happen in the very near term that this step might signal, oh, the fact that the US is doing that, well, that's a, that's a good faith gesture in that direction and that, that brings other things on board. So are there other countries waiting in the wings that were hoping we were gonna take this step and now that we have, it's a reassurance to them?
2: I, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that first. I, um, the global Negotiations on climate change have been uh, paltry at best, um, and the, one of the main reasons for that is that the U.S. has not participated in a meaningful way. Uh, although it's come to the table, it's never offered anything that it could deliver upon. Um, uh, this allows uh, would allow the United States to go to the negotiating table, saying that we've done we've done something pretty substantial and that we're asking others to do the same. Um, it's a very different style of leadership than the one that we've depended upon, which was, you know, as we would say, we're willing to do things so long as we also have China and India and all the other countries weren't willing to do anything. If they're doing something too, um, this is kind of taking a, a, a different tact um, where you could characterize what we're seeing uh, globally as a, uh, a great step in leadership, uh, in the right direction, or you could characterize it as, um, I think the technical term they use in game theory is sucker. Um, <laughs> the, 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 you know, we're, we're basically just giving a gift to the world and putting ourselves at a competitive disadvantage. Um, and, and it, we have to see what, which way this is going to play out. I'm hopeful though.
0: Yeah, so let's let's kind of paint a picture for, for the listeners about the, you know, because I think everybody, my sense is that a lot of our listeners will have heard a bunch of the terms in this, uh, that are used in this uh, debate before. Um, so, you know, Kyoto Protocols, people have probably heard of that. Um, uh, people might have heard of the IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which releases these reports every now and then. Um, people know about the greenhouse uh, effect. They know about greenhouse gases. They know about carbon dioxide. They understand there's a debate, uh, which is maybe kind of silly, about um, the degree of um, human contribution to climate change. They probably understand that, like, a whole bunch of, most scientists, like 98 99% agree that, uh, that it's a real problem, human contributions to uh, greenhouse gases and the greenhouse gas uh, effect on climate. Um, so... I, but maybe if we start, I mean, the U.S. is a signatory um, to the uh, U.N. Convention, right? The U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, but we haven't signed on to some of the implementing protocols. Do I have that basically right, Brigham? Do you know?
2: I think that we've signed on to uh, the Kyoto Protocol. We just never got it ratified and never really done anything about
0: oh, it. Oh, right, right, yeah. Um, so the Framework Convention obligates uh, as far as I understand it, that basically obligates uh, the parties to kind of keep talking. It obligates them to the framework of each implementing substantial reductions to uh, avert the potential of really bad climate change, in essence, right? And Kyoto, the Kyoto Protocols and the several other conventions since then, which we'll link up in the show notes, have been about trying to establish more specific targets.
2: That's right, Kyoto being the biggest one.
0: It's funny
1: that you, it, what's interesting about what you're doing in, in this conversation, although we meant, we start with the proposed rule, right? And now you're talking about a UN framework convention and protocols that, that assist it. And that second thing is very topic specific, right? It's a, it's, it's about climate change in particular. Right. And this proposed rule is a rulemaking under the Clean Air Act, which is about air pollution. Right. So we're using tools that we have in place to deal with pollution in the air. And we're categorizing carbon dioxide as a pollutant yeah. uh, because of the harms to humans that it does cause in this context right. and the finding that's been made about the danger that it represents. But, but it feeds into this bigger thing, which we aren't actually yeah. doing, right? Let's, we aren't yeah. actually engaging within, the, that's, within that's, the mechanism of dealing with climate change as a thing in and of itself because it's a problem,
0: not because it's a pollutant. Yeah, let's talk about how this thing should work. Right. Let's talk about how it should work. So the problem is that anybody anywhere can emit carbon dioxide. The more that's emitted, the worse the problem is. And so it's a classic kind of tragedy of the commons collective action problem where, you know, the incentive for me individually to reduce my carbon emissions maybe uh, aren't enough, you know, uh, without some mutual restraint for me actually to do so, because, you know, if I, you know, it's like Brigham said, you know, I'm a sucker because everybody else may just increase theirs. Right. So, uh, doing something about this problem only works if people are all signed on to it. So you need something like an international convention, which gets everybody on board with reducing uh, their greenhouse gas emissions. So we have something like that. You know, the, conven- the framework convention is the first step, and then we want to kind of make that more specific and maybe ratchet down the, uh, um, the targets and then maybe figure out some mechanisms that are in addition to what's already – so that may- you keep talking and you keep doing that. And then each country goes back and passes laws – Specifically aimed at the problem, right? So we have a, a carbon law. Maybe it's a carbon tax. You know, and maybe each country decides for itself how it's going to do that. Maybe it sets an overall carbon limit and then lets people trade. Uh, rights to emit carbon dioxide, sure. uh, where the all those rights add up to no more than the, the total limit which is allowed, the same way that we regulate a bunch of fisheries these days. Yeah. Maybe we just tax carbon. and We rely on ramping up the taxes to the point where we can get the uh, amount of carbon dioxide emissions down lower. Maybe we do some other things. There are a whole bunch of things you could do if you were focused on that problem. We have refused to do that. In fact, when I was kind of, you know, environmental activist a little bit before I went to law school, I, mean, I was writing some Kind of local press releases on this issue, at a time when you know when we were lambasting the uh, uh, the House of Representatives for trying to pass rules which prevented the government from spending any money, even to talk about climate change, right? Much less address the problem, right? Which continues to happen. Yeah, this is the continues. Legislatures to
1: passing measures that prohibit the spending right. of government dollars in any way that relates to. Climate right. change.
0: So there's no climate change law, as I understand, in the United States. There may be some smaller ones, other you know, maybe, except for the ones which say we can't do anything about it. And I don't know if there are any of those left. But uh, there's no kind of equivalent of the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, uh, uh, National Environmental Policy Act, which is specifically focused on climate change. Right. So we turn to the tools that we have, as you said. And this is where the Clean Air Act comes in. Yep. And Massachusetts, several years ago, and maybe even almost a decade ago now, uh, sued... The EPA saying, you've got this act which says that if there are pollutants in the air which endanger human beings and the environment, maybe Brigham can fill us in on the exact phrase, um, EPA, you should regulate those to safe levels and uh, using these different tools and different restrictions. Right. And guess what? Greenhouse gases are going to kill us all, (laughs) right, because the seas are going to rise and and, uh, uh, and the weather's going to change and it's going to be like, you know, the zombie apocalypse without the zombies. Right. And so you need to do something. So the, yeah, Brigham. Yeah.
2: The, the Clean Air Act. The way that it's structured is it's got it um, many uh, m- more than ten, but um, many different little levers in it that basically they call it an endangerment finding. Uh, and what what how the act works is if you find if the EPA finds that uh, pollution will endanger public health or welfare, that the specific um, the specific uh, Endangerment findings are, are are different throughout the Clean Air Act, but they always say something like endanger public health and welfare with an adequate margin of safety or something like that. Then they then they're mandated to regulate particular technologies, uh, planes, trains, automobiles, um,
0: for the particular pollutant that right. was found to That's endanger. Right. So we're talking about particular right. chemicals, right? right here. So yeah. what,
2: they, what they say is the endangerment finding, like the one in Mass versus EPA, would say this would uh, emissions from cars and new car engines will uh, endanger public health and welfare. That was that case. Um, what, the way that uh, the, the act is structured, though, it, it basically says, look, if we're going to regulate cars, we're going to regulate outdoor power equipment, lawnmowers, tractors, off-road vehicles, uh, airplanes, whatever the endangerment, wherever the endangerment finding is, we're also going to, do, to regulate automatically the bigs the really big polluters if if we if we're worried enough about it to think about what's coming out of your tailpipe of the car we're going to to identify those sources that are just huge emitters and just say okay we don't need to go through the analysis with you if we found it's a problem with the car it's obviously a power, a a
0: a problem with the smokestack um and so the biggest and the biggest tailpipe we have when it comes to carbon dioxide are the smokestacks from carbon fired uh power plants right
2: that's right about 40 percent of the u.s's carbon emissions a little less than that come from uh come from these smokestacks um a little about a third of carbon emissions in the u.s come from cars um so you know mass versus epa takes takes a step towards cars and they say okay if you're gonna regulate cars you also have to regulate the bigs um this is a step along the way to regulate the bigs. Um, earlier this fall, the EPA came up with a rule that says, here's how we're going to regulate new power plants. Uh, and, you know, the one that came out this week, says how, this is how we're going to regulate existing power plants.
0: Okay, and before we get into the, uh, we're going to get into the specifics, but I also want to talk to you maybe more philosophically um, about, about the problem a little bit later. Um, but as, as we said, the, the Clean Air Act was not a climate change act um and what we have here is the use of existing statutory language to regulate this new kind of problem and 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 certainly at the time the clean air act was passed people anticipated you know that's the way it was written that it would regulate chemicals that were at the time of passage not necessarily understood to be a problem i mean it was written in an open ended way but but maybe global climate change presents a different kind of problem uh than than was anticipated and so there, there's an issue there but that's not the only statute that uh to which people turned um and I don't actually remember what happened with this. My memory is, 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 I would say not what it used to be, but it's never been good. Uh, but the Endangered Species Act was a also a potential lever, right? Because uh, polar bears are potential are, are threatened um, by climate change. You, know, you got melting sea ice. They've got nowhere to kind of, uh, fewer walruses to hunt, hauling out on the ice. I forget what all the stresses on them are, but uh, the polar bears are certainly threatened by climate change. And, and, The thing about the Endangered Species Act is that unlike the Clean Air Act, as I understand it, it does not generally include, a few exceptions to this in the act, um, kind of a cost-benefit-balance type provision. So if if you're threatening an endangered species or doing something which in, uh, further endangers an endangered species, you you just can't do it under the Act for the most part, yes. absent you know the HCP process when we'll getting the details of it. But it, it's a much stronger lever if it applied. But then so you get into this thing where the statute does appear to say that if you find that polar bears are threatened, that it automatically kicks in a bunch of kind of constraints on the federal government and on private individuals. But one naturally asks at the time that Endangered Species Act was passed, or or even as we think about it today, is that the right tool for confronting all of global climate change? You know, this statute, which seems to have other things in mind. So there's a really kind of interesting question about how we adapt statutes to current problems here, especially one as dramatic as global climate change. And I don't know if there are any other statutes, Brigham, which are also potential handles that people are using on this problem, but I would say just as with the ESA and the Clean Air Act, I mean, these are all... um, uh, tools which are being used to get at a problem, which, you know, by all rights, we should pass a statute directly confronting the problem. Um, but we can't do that.
2: Yeah. The, the Clean Water Act has also been um, ocean acidification uh, can trigger a, a, other problems. That, um, uh, you know, we've seen public nuisance. We've seen at least in uh, – it's a much weaker handle, but NEPA litigation. Um, you know, I, I – But I do want to say, uh, I I, I think it's probably important to to note that the Clean Air Act, um, it it, it doesn't have a lot of cost-benefit analysis in it. Um, Right. It's just about whether it endangers public health or welfare. We regulate up to that point, and sometimes with an adequate margin of safety. Um, uh, But that's, the, the thing that they're really doing here is, um they're kind of rolling out what would one would can would think would be a series of regulations and they're starting with the biggest part of the problem and they're going to ratchet down. Um how far they ratchet down uh is anyone's guess. I mean it it could be that they ratchet all the way down to um this is really technical but it's it's an important point the the way that the uh act is written where they say, okay, if you're going to regulate the, the cars, you also have to regulate the big stationary sources. Um, depending on what kind of stationary source you are, that's somewhere between 100 tons to 250 tons per year. Um, a, a large house with a that uses a lot of natural gas would probably hit that 250 ton level. Certainly apartment complexes would hit it. Most most uh, most uh, buildings on universities, any sort of mid-sized business will would probably hit that if they have a a a big boiler. Um, so this really could be the first of many many different regulations. that They're just starting with the most obvious targets, which uh, and there's some litigation about whether or not the way that they've gone about this is the right way, but that they're starting with the bigs of the bigs.
0: And maybe you want to fill in the details here, but um, anybody can go and read this stuff online, and we're going to link a few things in the show notes about basically how it works. But, you know, sometimes it's easier just to hear it. Uh, As I understand it, uh, the federal government, through the Clean Air Act, is going to require states to create state implementation plans for um, enacting reductions, right, um, below... Basically, you have to reduce your carbon emissions below below a certain level. And I think it's in, you know, there's been some debate about whether it's 2005 or 2012. Um, And I'll link up some of that stuff in the show notes too. Uh, But basically, the states are going to be. debate about the baseline. uh, The the press accounts, all the press accounts I saw reference 2005. Yeah. And there's some reasons to think they chose 2005 because that's when the emissions were at their peak. But there's some. Uncertainty with that. I'll oh, link it up in the okay. show notes. It's not a huge deal for us to get sidetracked on now, right. um, but I just want to kind of outline the general way that it that it works. Uh, that the states will have kind of authority to pursue different mechanisms that work for them in most efficiently reducing um, emissions. So that and if you
1: frame it as percentage reduction, you have to pick a baseline at some year because a percentage right. reduction mechanism has to have a baseline. Right. So whether it's two thousand five or what it's got to, there has to be one.
0: So it, 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 that basic understanding is correct, isn't it, Brigham? I mean, the right. states will be free to enter like interstate <clears throat> compacts like the Northeast has done and have an emissions trading market. And it, is all that stuff on the table?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they, they basically, uh, you can get your reductions any way you want, including from energy efficient measures, which means less of the same sort of energy being created. Um, it, it could really go any way you want. And I think it, Um, you uh, the the uh, clean air act the way that it's structured is you basically you usually have a federal mandate and then you have state specific efforts to meet that mandate Um, and what they've done is they've used a pretty obscure part of the clean air act to say okay we're we're now setting a federal standard and states you know how this drill works figure out how you're going to get there and states can do states can get there you know if there is a way to get a potential reduction i think they can probably get there um
1: now what's the backup mechanism if a if a state fails to either adopt a state implementation plan or adopts one but fails to hit its target what what recourse do what mechanisms does the epa have and the reason I ask this is simply because we're living in a political era where um, you have huge segments of the country which are remarkably recalcitrant and remarkably oppositional. Anything that is endorsed by a body located in Washington, D.C. is by virtue of that very fact to be opposed with every ounce of energy in this person's being. So there are some states who I would imagine there will be people saying we sh- shall not have a state implementation plan. As a way to show that how much we reject this
2: idea, so do, what's the backup? Well, generally speaking, if states are given an obligation and they don't fulfill it, EPA can fill in the regulation uh, in a way that they find appropriate, um, which states really hate. Obviously, um, I, I'm not sure about this very specific regulation, though. Um, I, I, I did not. I've not read. That part of the rule that would allow me to to say whether or not they could create something like a federal implementation plan. But that's basically the structure that they've used is, you know, they've always, they've they've got this hammer in the back. Um. (laughs) That's Darcy and Darcy's friend Waylon
1: is over. And so we've got two dogs helping us this week.
0: Yeah. And who knows what they're barking at right now.
1: Uh, um, okay, so in so for example, um, there was a case earlier this term at the Supreme Court about a different Clean Air Act thing. This I think it, it's the particular... It's soot, right? And other particulates, the National Ambient Air Quality Standards Proceedings. Yeah. So that's a, an instance where if a, a state has to have a plan and then they can... Either they're going to hit that plan... What if they adopt a plan, but they simply fail to hit their targets? So this, the, given that we're enlisting the states... As part of the way this gets uh, implemented, there has to be some layer of backup possibility so that the federal government, if the state governments fail to carry out their role in some way, fail, because there are multiple ways they could fail to achieve it. Um, there has to be some backup
0: mechanism. And this is always a problem in environmental law, right? So does the federal government, does the EPA have the prerogative just to create, as you say, the federal imp- implementation plan if the state fails to do it or fails to hit the targets? Uh, what coercive measures do they have? Is there funding they can withhold? Are there fines they can impose? Is there a citizen suit provision that would allow citizens to go in and say, you haven't hit your targets? And the judge issues an injunction saying you have to hit your targets and then right. sets a deadline for um, uh revising the state implementation plan so it's uh you know in such a way as to make it more likely the targets here hit and then if they don't do it then, then it's there's a contempt order and what happens if there's a contempt order and do we get all the way down to the point where there's like a, you know a, um, a federal troops <laughs> you know pushing people out of doorways and stuff like that you know how much recalcitrance can there be that's the question right of course ultimately
1: that's the question although I think it's it's at least sensible to see why there has to be some um, given that there, this whole thing is predicated on a cooperative relationship in, in very real terms, a cooperative carrying out of a plan, there has to be some mechanism that's a second-order mechanism in case the
2: first-order mechanism fails.
0: Yeah, and I, and I have to say, I don't know what it is uh, for this. Um.
2: So, yeah, I, I'm looking at the statute right now. Um, it appears it appears the same as it, it, um, it reads, um, the administrator shall have the same authority a plan for a state in cases where a state fails to submit a sat- satisfactory plan um so yeah i mean I, I think we're basically under the same regime as we would for a state implementation a normal state implementation plan um so yeah it seems i sensible
0: for any other pollutant you mean yeah yeah
2: yeah well for any of the any of the the nac pollutants so this is they've, they've got all of that um uh, they've got the ability to withhold f- highway funds it appears they've got the ability to um come up with their own plan um, There's probably some more minor sanctions, but those are the two the two the two big ones.
0: Why has is this issue become so partisan and that's one of the kind of the puzzles, right? Why are people so divided on the science? of climate change, just on the empirical fact, like are humans contributing to climate change? How bad is it? And of course, like I said, you know, my bias is, is towards uh, thinking it's a real problem because I've been kind of doing things on it since the mid 90s uh, at a time when, you know, the science was kind of already in um, at that point. And it's just been a matter of trying to uh, convince people um, that that's the case. And and now it's almost too late. You know, there's the news about the West Antarctic ice uh, shelf breaking off and sea levels will for sure rise by 10 feet within the next century. Uh, and that's not even counting the additional sea level from melting in Greenland and all the other ice caps. So, so you know, you could say we're screwed. Um, but but why, why is this uh, such a partisan issue? What do you think, Brigham?
2: I think the reason that this is... So difficult is because it's going to require a major change, um, and people are resistant to that change. I think that's one point of it, uh, uh, one part of it. I think the other reason is, um, I mean, let's 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 be honest. The, the the environmentalists would have jumped on this before the science was in, um, and you know, I mean, I, there's sort of a lack of trust. I think for some people, at least of the environmental movement, but I think it mainly comes down to. People resistant to change. There's been some really interesting research on this though uh, there was some research done by uh, mainly mainly people from Yale uh,
0: Dan Kahan
2: Dan Kahan is what I'm thinking yeah. about that that, that that basically shows you know if you tell people that the solution is um, the solution is something like the proposed rule regulation environmentalists are just in love with the idea that this is a problem if you tell people that the solution is something like some new technology to seed clouds uh environmentalists start doubting climate change and people that are on the fence start thinking it's a good idea i mean it's a i mean it's a good idea to do something about it i mean part of it is just we're just made up that way but you know you look at the rest of the world and it it isn't that the, the the science isn't disputed in most places. The United States is somewhat of an anomaly.
0: Yeah, somehow it got tribalized. And what was interesting about that um, Kahan study and um, Ezra Klein, I think, in one of the first articles for Vox, it may have even been the first one. We'll link that up in the show notes. Uh, reported on it and wrote about how I think it's called "How Politics Is Making Us Stupid," but um, which showed that people's certainty levels in climate change. I think we're mostly explained by partisan ID and not by knowledge of science. That increased knowledge of science made you more partisan on this issue. It didn't change you from not believing in climate change to to, to believing in, in in climate change. And and so and it's what? A,
1: it's a more it's an instance of a more general phenomenon of motivated reasoning. Some, that yes. the way you process the data is through the frame, the partisan frame. That's right.
0: why it's just fuel for your fire. And so, but I think more than that, it's like somehow this issue has gotten into the realm of issues uh, on which your position signals your membership in a certain tribe, right? And so even if you are a liberal who – if you're a liberal, even if you are somewhat skeptical of this because maybe you think that be, even because the issue is so partisan that there's a lot of cost to scientists to not being as skeptical as they normally are and it makes you doubt the science despite the uh, – despite the unanimity of scientists more than you would other scientists. And so it's not that you don't believe in it. It's just that you, you think that the issue is unfortunately part. So even if you're in like that camp, uh, a lot of liberals won't necessarily signal their doubts about climate change because believing in climate change is a strong signal that you are a liberal, uh, or that you are a member of the environmental movement or whatever it is. Similarly, um, if you are a, uh, conservative, you know, of various stripes, um, Of whatever stripe, even if you ordinarily would have, you know, even if ordinarily this amount of evidence would be enough to convince you there's a problem on, say, any other issue, um, because the issue is now so salient in terms of identifying you as a member of a certain tribe, there's very little benefit uh, to you to saying, oh, you know, disagreeing with your friends and saying you know, I think there's something to this climate change thing because there's nothing you're going to do about it. Like, it doesn't help solve the problem. It's kind of like voting, right? It's irrational at some level for any individual to vote, and yet if no one did, we'd have a real problem. Well, similarly, there's not <laughs> any real benefit to a hardcore Republican to coming out and saying, yeah, I believe in climate change because they're not going to solve the problem on their own. On the other hand, there's a huge cost, right? right? The cost is maybe no longer being a member of the tribe because this has become not only a an issue of tribal identification, but almost a defining Issue of tribal identification, you know, it's one of the big ones, like abortion, yep. guns. You know, I think it's it's approaching that right. uh, kind of order of magnitude. Used to be gays, right? Used to be right, and that and, issue is. And it's interesting that uh, yeah.
1: that's an example that the the nature of the the, the issues that are on this list of sig- the signaling list. Right. Here's a here's a cheap way to send send a strong signal. Um, things can fall on, off and on that list. So things the the things on the list changes. Right, so same-sex marriage, or maybe you know, equality for gay and lesbian people more generally—that that is not that doesn't have the salience anymore that it did even five or ten years ago. Right, uh, which I think ten years ago you wouldn't have known where the horizon was on that issue. You would right. have thought, well, ten years from now, it's probably going to be just as big a signal
0: as it is today. Well, it's not true. And maybe we have thoughts about you know, maybe it's like you know, as more people have gotten to know gay people. Uh, even people who don't have like naturally abstract kind of empathy empathize with people they know. And so it's gotten easier. Maybe a lot of not a lot of people have actually met the greenhouse effect in person, right? So it's harder to, to right. deal. So there may be reasons. I like what Brigham said the, uh, a minute ago about about trust because thinking about this issue back in the nineties when the debate first I think got really hyper partisan. Um, I think there was a lot of distrust of, uh, uh, on the conservative side saying, you know, we've met you before. You know, you, you were at Woodstock smoking dope and you never believed in these coal fire power plants to begin with. You were out trying to bomb dams and crap back in the, uh, uh, back in the sixties and seventies. And here you are with this science, right? The so-called science. And there's this guy at MIT or wherever else who says it's all bunk. Right. Um, so I'm not so, you know, I understand why you would want to say that the conservatives I understand why you want to do this. And it's not because you're actually worried about warming, it's because you want to shut down modern industrial society, right? Uh, and and that you know that has such a partisan tinge to it that you can see how this became an issue of partisan identity. I don't know if I said that well or if that makes any sense. But My,
2: I, I I do think that um, this this might not be a popular perspective, but I, I think that Al Gore actually is largely to blame on this point. Um, you know, I right after a very difficult election, uh, where the country was sort of sitting on pins and needles, and people were feeling uh, a lot of animosity towards both of the candidates. At that point, it just depended on which flavor you liked, which one you you hated. Um, at the rebound after the campaign is like, well, okay, now I'm going to take climate change on. Uh, I think that, that right, I think that pushed some people in weird ways.
0: Maybe that took, but. I, I do have to say, back in you know ninety, what was it ninety seven, ninety eight? Sure. I, I was in Texas at the time and was writing a or uh, was editing a, a national press release for local consumption that and, and putting in stuff about the fact that we'd had hundred straight days of hundred plus degree weather, right? And and editing it to make it clear that this was not like you know you couldn't it was at, at that time and you couldn't attribute anything to climate change, and so try to say, look, this is a dramatic preview of what life with climate change is going to be like. <laughs> around here and it's not pretty. Um, and at that time we were, you know, there was a, a uniform opposition even to talking about climate change in, in the house. And uh, I, for, it seems to me it had already been
2: oh, it, it a, a
0: partisan issue then, right? It
2: certainly had been. Um, I'm not saying that, um, that uh, he was the one that, that started this, but I think it really started to solidify. This as a wedge issue.
0: Yeah. Yep,
1: uh, well, it, yeah. Eventually, I Al Gore that. had to be effective at something.
0: So, uh,
1: I suppose being effective at alienating a certain group of people—we're not going to have
0: this. We're not going have, have this conversation. We've already. <laughs> this is you're going to get you're going to get us off track like you did when you when you dis Justice Breyer last time. Oh boy! And you're going to make me have to defend uh, Al Gore, which I would happily do to some extent. I mean, it's a complicated <laughs> issue. Uh, but goodness knows, if we start talking about Bush v. Gore, but, yeah. but it's I, like this podcast will that be way that, that will end, that that will end so- the podcast. Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
2: this uh, – about a year ago, I was doing some research in the Nixon Library, uh, looking through President Nixon's papers. And I found a memo there from uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, who was at the time a uh, White House counsel, and later a, new, a senator from the state of New York. Listen, uh, basically, what was going on at the time of the Nixon administration, they were looking for any old random, any old random uh, environmental issue to bring to the public. They, 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 they proposed 36 or 37 different initiatives, including the modern uh, revisions of the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, so on and so forth. And they were just collecting different ideas. And this was his idea. Listen to this. He says, uh, he says, as with so many of the interesting environmental questions we don't really have a satisfactory measurement on the carbon dioxide problem. Uh, on the other hand, it's very—it's a very clear problem, and perhaps most particularly one that can seize the imaginations of persons normally indifferent to projects of ap- apocalyptic change. The process is a simple one. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has the effect of a pane of glass of greenhouse. It goes and explains. The problem, And he says, over the years, the hypothesis has been refined and more evidence has come to support it. It's now pre- pretty cr- clearly agreed that CO2 content will rise by 25% by 2000. And this can increase average temperature of the Earth's surface, nearly 7 degrees Fahrenheit, which you can turn could raise sea levels by 10 feet. Goodbye, New York. Goodbye, Washington. Wow. You know, I this… Well, can sl- you tell us what's the
1: date on that memo? Uh,
2: let's see. This came this was this was pre nineteen seventy Wow uh, uh, it was before the passage of the Clean Air Act uh, or the revisions that we're, we're dealing with um, uh, the the uh, and I, I I can send you a copy of it i've got a I've got a copy of it if you want to link it up for your your listeners um, but uh, you know this is something that the scientists have been focused on for quite a while, it, and, and this is not a a new new problem as far as science goes. It's just become increasingly clear with every year. Um, you know, you you knew that we we had gotten to the point of you know whatever consensus means when the uh, uh, National Society of Petroleum Engineers. Decided to change their position to say we don't see the evidence to say we're on the fence. Um, you, you know, that, you know that we, you know that we've gotten to the point where um, every other scientific body has has come down uh, in in favor of labeling the the problem was one caused by humans. And once the once the petroleum engineers said, "Okay, we're not willing to fight the fight anymore." I mean, this this is over as far as science goes, but politically, it's We're we're just at the outer edge of it,
0: and and in fact, I think uh, I'm trying to look at these data, but I think carbon dioxide grew at uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions in general grew 1.3 percent per year from 1970 to 2000, and then 2.2 percent between 2000 and 2010. Yeah. Um. So I think 25 percent was low balling. Right. Put it mildly. Right. Oh. Um. And so that's the other. You know. Um. Thing people have talked about is like what kind of signal will it take to break the to break down the the partisan identification that the issue has uh become um is it like insurers charging dramatically higher rates for properties and activities that um would be climate deniers actually care about and because what are you going to do argue with the insurer you know in the market about how much you have to pay for something i mean uh, you know, when beach homes become unaffordable because they can't be insured. Uh, you know, that that would, I guess, I guess to, for that to happen, I don't know. I mean, you would think the taxes and the other things that would be needed to solve the problem would kick in before that point and then government would be the bad guy. I, trying to game this out and figure out the partisan trajectory seems to me to be very difficult here.
2: I, I think one of the real, um, one of the other problems is People are looking for a face that people understand. Uh, and so every time you have a natural disaster, you have people who will assert immediately, this is because of climate change. And it very well could have been, you know, increased in, increased hurricanes, uh, intensity, increased in number, droughts, whatever. Uh, all of those things could be linked to climate change, but you've got people out there kind of drumming drumming up the... the uh, Problem long before the data could ever be analyzed, where you could make such a conclusion, Uh, and I think I think that that continues to make people skeptical. But I also just think that there's people don't understand um, just how clear. uh, I mean, I think people think it's a much a much harder question scientifically than than it is. Um, Well,
1: okay, so the 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 reason I'm I don't find it surprising. That there is that perception is because there there are large segments of our economy, yeah. uh, oil and coal extraction industries, that in much the same way you could say, well, gosh, why is there all this confusion about whether cigarettes are addictive? Well, because there is a cigarette production industry that it devotes some of its resources to preserving confusion. And in just the same way, it would seem to me that, you know, you scratch the surface of denialism and you, before too long, you hit some money that passed through the Coke bank accounts. It's, it's not really all that mysterious, is it? I mean oil production, coal production. These are massive these are massively profitable enterprises. I mean there's an incentive And they won't be as profitable if we start to take the measures that we would need to take to get this problem managed better in a shorter term rather than a longer term, which we need to do because it's a cumulative problem and we will soon be past the point of no return.
0: I mean there's an incentive to sow confusion and I remember, you know, again, late nineties thinking and talking to people about the fact that these sure, these companies are filled with smart people. They know what they're saying is nonsense. Uh, and some of these, especially some of these think tanks, there was one who made a video about CO2 and how it couldn't be harmful because, you you know, you we, we what, what do they say? Uh, uh, plants breathe it in and we breathe it out. Right? right. And they had this nice, you know, pictures of plants and stuff like that. Yeah, global warming. Like, Here's a snowstorm. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, like, it's the like same the sort of moronic. I was wondering, like, would these companies be responsible? You know, it's going to be very expensive. It's going to be more expensive to solve this problem later than if we solve it now. And I just, there's a part of me, maybe an emotional part of me, which said these people should be on the hook because they're lying and they know they're lying about it. And at least for the the ones where you could prove that they knew they were they were lying about it. So, you know that that kind of cigarette company analogy um, has has certainly been made before. Um, and there is you know this is an issue where there are entrenched interests who have an interest in not doing anything about it it 's not like this is unique in, in the law right i mean it's well I, I would go further they don 't have an interest in not doing anything about it.
1: They have an interest in preventing everyone from doing anything about sure. it sure it's it 's a bit sure. more intense than that right? right so if you look instead at mili- at uh, for example, planning within the armed services right, they actually I think have the opposite framework, so they have an incentive to try to plan better for all of the contingencies including some that well you might say that's fanciful but if it happens we need to have had a plan in place yeah so if you look at military folk they're they're already planning out all sorts of things about uh, the the kinds of conflicts that might occur yeah so they maybe have a an incentive to take a dimmer view of, of how things might turn out uh, and they don't seem to have any trouble getting their arms around climate change. No,
0: that, that, that's true. I, I, I want to kind of turn the conversation back to individuals and, and, how, and how we form ideas and partisanship, because I think it's it, it builds on this idea, because I, I think that uh, there are lots of issues as to which it's very clear there will be entrenched interests, right? And at some point, the social problem becomes so great that those interests have to kind of change their act because of just everyday people's views about the things. and And why are we having such trouble with climate change getting to that point where there's, and maybe we're not, maybe the process that we're seeing with these rules and increasing kind of international cooperation or, or that is that process. is just much slower than we'd like given the scale of the problem. Mm. Uh, but so it's, you know, it's clear there are people who are kind of denialists about it. And then there are people who are accepting of the science and that this, as we mentioned earlier, is kind of almost like tribally driven more than kind of science driven. Uh, and I guess it was John Stewart the other night who had this thing about, you know, uh, liberals don't be so smug about climate denialism because you are, um, you know, there are liberals who are associated with vaccine denialism. Sure. Uh, and Kevin Drum wrote a really great piece kind of debunking that, showing that, in fact, vaccine denialism is not, doesn't seem to be partisan identified. They're kind of just vaccine denialists on the right and left who do it for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, but there may be other issues on which you know, liberals are you know, less worried about, whether it's alternative medicine or some other things, where liberals have kind of not anti-science ideas, but ideas and important beliefs which are not backed up by science and maybe even be contraindicated, where, there's a, where they're skeptical of scientific establishment. Well, and, in fact, environmentalism in general. Right, the it's whole like, genet- living gen- through chemistry,
1: genetically modified organisms in food is probably the the thing that yeah. there is a partisan ID where the the liberal side is the one that's denying the science.
0: Yeah, and 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 you know, nuclear power, maybe another one. But, you know, the minute I say these and I have to dis- declare my own bias, I'm seeing all of the reasons why you might actually take on a skeptical stance, right? <laughs> and, right. and it seems to me those are like there are reasonable reasons why you might. Have be cautious about nukes or cautious about g m o s uh um maybe that's my kind of you know liberalism here uh shining through although i think we'd have to have an extended discussion to get to the bottom of that. My point was going to be though that when when you look at liberals in climate change, yes, they believe in the science, yes, they support these laws in the abstract, but when you look at their revealed preferences, oftentimes you don't see liberals saying, you know we're gonna take fewer plane trips we're gonna buy smaller cars." Uh, you do see liberals driving more Priuses and Nissan Leafs and these other cars. But again, a lot of that is like demonstrating membership in the tribe or could be. Maybe it's like there's a reflective process about how it fits into one's beliefs about the science. Um, but on all kinds of other issues, like should we have a, you know, should we burn wood in the fireplace, uh, um, which is actually more of a, it's not really a CO2 problem because of, you know, it's not using fossil CO2. It's more of a particular problem. But when you look at other issues about which liberals would tend to, you know, say that we should solve the environmental problem in that way or this way. In the abstract, when you look at personal preferences, maybe there's not such a huge uh, divide. I don't know. I mean, I I don't, yeah, I don't want to overblow it because uh, I haven't looked at the science of it. I haven't looked at the polling. I haven't tried, you haven't systematically studied the revealed preferences of kind of strong liberals when it comes to climate change. Um, But what I have seen is a lot of, Liberals who are engaging in activities now, which will have to change if we're going to get on top of this problem.
2: I think that's absolutely right. I, I think that I, very few people, liberal or conservative, are, are living uh, a lifestyle that would get us down to ultimately get us down to levels of uh, carbon emissions in the in the uh, atmosphere that would be acceptable or safe. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that that's, that's probably right. I, I think just kind of going back to the, one of the things that I think makes it a difficult, I think the causal story is a difficult one. You know, I, um, yeah, you think about cigarettes, you say, you, you're telling me you, I put the smoke in my lungs and it causes lung cancer. <laughs> that, that, that sounds, a, I mean, that sounds a little far fetched, but not really. Um, if you, <laughs> If you're saying, uh, you're telling me that, you know, this power plant is going to hurt polar bears, which is going to cause, you know, because the ice is going to melt and that's going to flood Miami. I mean, this (laughs) is Paul's graph times 12, you know, this is just so weird. Um, And I think that that's one of the reasons that people can laugh at it. I mean, you either have to, uh, uh, you either have to laugh or cry about it. There's not
0: much of a... A choice. You just say this is ridiculous, or you just say we're doomed. Um, you know, I- yeah, because the power plants are all they're doing is what I do when I breathe, with respect <laughs> to this issue, right? Emitting CO two. So, what are going to have a law against breathing? You know that kind of thing, right? No. Hmm.
2: I just think it's. I think it's. I think it's a, a tough story to sell from a science perspective because it's a complicated story, um, and it's a lot easier just to. Wave your hand and say this isn't right. And I, I think people have a really large misunderstanding of what the problem is. It, people people that try to refute it often say things like, uh, you know, it's, we had a terrible winter in Minnesota. What are you talking about? I guess Minnesota. We had a terrible winter in Idaho. Um, what are you talking about? Well, you know, people don't understand the difference between weather. They don't underst- weather and climate. They don't understand the difference between global climate and localized climate. Um, it's just a, it's just, it's a hard story to to tell, I think, to people.
1: And it's made harder by the fact that there is, I mean, just to take the winter in Idaho scenario, right? You've got a major news network that is dedicated to consistently uh, providing those messages. Yes. Every day between, you know, the end of September and the beginning of June. So, and why is that network, which is run by Roger Ailes, dedicated to doing that? Well, because it's part of an overall politico-economic arrangement system of interacting persons, many of whom benefit financially from – I don't think I'm being a conspiracy theorist here as much as I'm simply being a structuralist about, you know, what are the structures of the industries, what are their interests, and how do they make sure their interests are served – so what you say, which is very true, that the relationship between weather and climate, for example, is a is a can be a tough one to understand. Okay, it's not going to be made any easier to understand when you've got a huge megaphone blaring in your face with disinformation for nine months out of the year.
0: Yeah. So, so a bad problem is made worse. In well, other that, words. So this is the problem. That, this is for law. This is the problem we face. Right. It, we've got a a a huge Global problem yes. that will require collective action by a bunch of countries, where you have entrenched interests that have an interest in not solving the problem in the short term, at least, and where it's very difficult for the for the for the reasons that Brigham provides and and uh, and that and that you state uh, to convince people on an individual level that there is a problem which merits some sacrifice to solve. Yes. Um. The law does not have a lot of experience, I think, with those kinds of problems. And I think the allusion we made earlier to, to gay rights is, is comes back like there's been a sea change, a sea change from the time when I was a boy and gay slurs were everywhere um, when the idea of, of gay marriage was ridiculous or thought to be ridiculous um, to now. And I think a lot of that is the process of portrayal of 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 gay people as ordinary in popular culture and more people have come out and more people now know that they know gays. I'm not sh- I'm not sure people m- people know more gays. I think more people know now that they know <laughs> gay people, right? Right. Um that's a mechanism for legal change. Similarly with uh you know I, another mechanism for legal change is something like the Civil War, right, which uh, dramatically, you know, we get the Equal Protection Clause. We we uh but even that was not the completion of the social change, which led to the legal change, which led to Brown versus board and, and, uh, and the civil rights statutes, right? There was a a huge complicated history there. Um, but all of those, at least you could explain why people might change their mind. There's a story about why people might change their mind on the issue, uh, which kind of speaks to the better angels of our natures, right? That, uh, I can become convinced that you are part of the community of equals, just by getting to know you, right? Because the human mind is capable of both hardening and softening, right? And getting to know uh, getting to know somebody and care about them, it makes it hard to kick them when that happens, right? Um, climate change is is different, and, and there have been different kind of proposals for what it... Or, 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 or different kinds of accounts for the kind of thing that might convince people that this is worthy of sacrifice. One is just hitting people in the pocketbooks you know it'll be impossible to insure the beachfront houses it'll be you know commodity prices will go up i mean there are all kinds of things that may happen which may convince people hey this is getting expensive for me and better to take a hit now on this and solve the problem in the long the same way maybe that uh that some fishing communities not all have been brought around to the idea of of tradable quotas brigham i think um Uh, so maybe that's one mechanism, but then there are others who say that we need a different understanding of our relation to the environment. You know, I think you know Jed Purdy is one of these voices, right? The, the, this is this whole way that we've been living is is unsustainable. We're now, I think, the word he uses is the Anthropocene. This is the era of of the Earth's history in which we now live, and and our basic understandings about the, and now that, and that's an attitude which I think feeds into kind of conservative distrust. Not necessarily. I'm not saying you shouldn't take that view. And maybe that's the view that will be necessary, right? That you'll have to change minds and ethics. It's the one about which a lot of kind of more law and economist-oriented environmental lawyers are skeptical. They're skeptical that you can change minds that way uh, by imbuing a sense of ethic and responsibility. I'm not so sure, though. I think most people most of the time are living their lives by norms. Like, what do most people kind of like me and my community do? What am I supposed to do? You know, what kind of car am I supposed to buy? without looking like an idiot. Like, in most communities now, buying a Hummer brands you as kind of an idiot, right? Um, maybe not every community, but a whole lot of communities. That subtle process of change, I mean, how does that happen? Is that what we need? Or, or, or Brigham, are you of the view that maybe it's enough using just kind of economic signals and then markets, uh, tradable quotas and things like that to, to solve the problem?
2: You know, I, 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 I'm not sure. I, one thing that I find... Hopeful. Um, I've I've taught law school both in Texas and in Utah, and um, uh, my observation is that virtually every law school student these days that I teach believe that climate change is occurring and people are causing it. That wasn't the case when I started just a few years ago, but I, I think generationally, there, this, I mean, there really could be a, a, a sea change,
0: and and not to care and not to characterize too much. But you teach at BYU, that's right, which has a reputation as a conservative institution in law school. That's not stretching it too much, is no, it? No,
2: it's not stretching yeah. it at all. I, my, the very first week I was here, I was asked by the Federalist Society to debate someone on climate change, and um, I, I thought I thought for sure that the students were going to be very divided on this issue. Um, so I, I, you know, I asked my students, uh, you know, just getting ready for this, how many of you, and maybe they were, you know, they're my students. It was, this wasn't an anonymous poll, and you know, it was a raise of hand, but right, they, they seem to disagree with me on a wide range of other things, and they don't seem to care about it. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I just think, you know, it's possible that we could see a, a massive sea change. Um, you know, I I, it's possible that the Republican Party is going to have to rebrand itself, uh, not just for this issue, but for a wide range of other issues, and start trying to appeal to some of those um, younger folks. And and to the extent that that happens, that that could also change attitudes.
0: Well, what do you think that process is? Because I again, I don't. I, it seems to me a different process than that which has led to you know, almost universal acceptance by, especially by young people of, of gay people. Um, and it, it probably is not a pocketbook phenomenon. Um, is it just like, it, it, is it something to do with the, the internet and widespread dissemination of ideas and how quickly people are made fun of for ideas, which are clearly ridiculous. Is there like a John Stewart phenomenon going on here where now uh, you just can't get away with saying stuff on a new show without uh, uh, that's, Ridiculous without being taken down on Twitter or or Facebook. Is is it an information thing, or is it, or is there something about youth which is more open to environmental stewardship more broadly, or a different environmental ethic? Do you think it's an ethic thing, an information thing, or a, a money thing? I don't know.
2: I don't think it's an ethics thing. I, I, I you know I, um, I get pushback from my students. Some of them along the lines of, yeah, sure. Uh, climate change is a problem, but uh, I don't believe we should spend our money doing this, or I don't believe that, you know, I mean, they're not necessarily in the boat to go the duration. They're just, they just, they've just gotten over this hump. E-
0: even on that issue. And yeah, have you seen a similar softening on the Endangered Species Act? Or is the acceptance of climate change kind of an isolated issue no, in think, environmental I, law?
2: I think that, you know, um, again, I mean, I, what I, I see from students, and this isn't this isn't all of my students, but I'm just talking about the students who want to push against um, uh, principles of environmental stewardship. What they tend to say is, um, uh, you take the Endangered Species Act. They would say, sure, uh, uh, desert tortoise in my state is endangered, or um, uh, one of the other animals. Um, you know but uh ranchers are also having a really hard time right now um and they just tend to do the balancing differently um but they don't seem to be really interested in um fighting about whether or not you know they 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 might they might value the problem differently than i do uh, but they don't seem to necessarily push against the idea that the problem exists um which was not the case when i first started teaching at the university of houston a few Years ago, um, I I, I did get some pushback from people about the science of climate change. And they, you know, they wanted to talk about the, the, They had sort of the talking points of skeptical climate skeptics uh, ready and waiting when I brought this up.
1: I mean, one reason why people might not be as interested in in that, defending that line is there will come a point when it makes you sound like, well, well, it's surprising you found your way to the building this morning. I mean, given that you can't f- get that figured out, it's so how is it that you managed to get here today? I mean, it makes you sound like a, please don't send me to the grocery store, I may not make it back.
0: But this is, I mean, you know, you're asking for people to change the terms of tribal alignment again, and that's a slow process, right? I mean, it totally explains why this is frustrating evolution, you know, at least from my perspective, frustrating, from, you know, for, for sure, 100%. It's not happening. If it maybe there's global cooling, nobody knows. But or actually, they say it's definitely not happening. And then maybe it's happening, but some people say the Earth is cooling. Nobody really knows. There was that. And then the step. Oh yeah, it's warming, but we've got nothing to do with it. Natural cycles, right? Uh, And and then sprinkled with. Oh my God, the data are bad. Where it's not even warming anymore. That happens every now and then. And then, (laughs) and then yeah. So and then and then yeah, it's warming, and we're doing something about, and, and we're causing some of it, but it's not that bad. And now and I, I what I'm worried about is we will land we will land finally and immediately from there to um it's happening we're causing it it will be kind of bad but there's nothing we can do about it right N- never stopping on the square <laughs> you know it's happening we're causing it boy maybe we should do something about it um and I think that you know what what you're describing Brigham is a is a is a waypoint along that for people who are disinclined toward kind of liberal politics and see this again as a matter of, you know, something conservatives and liberals disagree on. Uh, it's, a, it's a waypoint of a long kind of acceptance to say that, yes, it's happening. Maybe it's kind of bad. Um, maybe it's not that bad, but I'm not sure what, if anything, we can do about it. Um, and the question is, how bad does it have to get for that realignment to occur again? And maybe by then it's, it's too late. I don't know. You can probably tell I'm just kind of frustrated.
2: Uh, you know, I, I don't think that too late really exists. Um, I think modest changes like the one that we had with the EPA rule uh, or even less than that will make a difference into the future. And, you know, slower progress is still maybe not great, but, um, you know, it helps. Um, so, I, I mean, I I don't know that too late really exists. I I. I, I think that uh, I think that too late for optimal an optimal landing point. Very well, m- might be.
0: Well, that, to, that, may, maybe too late for to prevent. You know, big chunks of the Earth from turning into kind of a hellscape. Yeah. Right. But you know, the, 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 kind of paradoxically and maybe cruelly, I think the United <laughs> States and Europe will be spared the worst of moderate warming. Um, And this contributes to why
1: it's a harder problem to solve.
0: Right. Yeah, Because
1: we're talking about making sacrifices in a context where the the same people who are giving us this data could explain that we will not suffer the worst of the consequences.
0: Yeah, because taking extreme measures now, the greatest benefactors there would be people in Southeast Asia and Africa where the problems are predicted at least as of now to be the worst and benefactors only in the extent that they benefit from not like having terrible natural disasters or having their right. uh, islands completely covered in the uh, by ocean uh it's a yeah what a problem so Brigham, what's the solution to this what do we what do we do
2: oh
1: boy i don't <laughs> he wasn't expecting that one christian <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, that's one I don't, I don't have an answer for that um you know i i maybe uh you know, maybe we focus on Florida, Florida is one place that is extremely vulnerable to climate change, yep, and it is a bellwether state for presidential politics um, maybe maybe the fight is really about Florida uh I, I don't know i you know it's it's certainly not about Iowa or New Hampshire,
0: um but yeah, I think you, you and I tweeted back and forth that uh, visualizer didn't we, about the um sea level rise caused by the collapse of the West yeah. Antarctic ice shelf. and right. So if you look at the 10-foot rise scenario, I th- think it goes all the Miami's underwater, isn't it? Yeah, Miami's underwater.
2: Um, and um, much of Florida's underwater.
0: Yeah, and that's not really compatible with uh, uh, modern life, is it? <laughs> 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 so there's a... that, and, and, and it looks like that's irreversible. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, it, I'm not sure it maybe maybe that's part of the solution um uh, you know, uh I, I don't know if you if you know Justin Padot at the, the University of Denver law school but he he has this idea of coming up with um regulations sort of based on contingencies uh and basically what you tell people is under one climate scenario, and it's not just climate that he talks about. but this is the part I found so interesting: that under one climate scenario, here's what happens to you, and under a second, here's what happens to you, and under a third, um, you know, maybe just making them feel more immediately the consequences of sort of long term neglect of this problem.
0: So, like, let's make a deal style, right? Well, got, like one curtain is, has so like just so the goat so and so stuff like that. Says,
2: mm-hmm. I want to develop on the uh, the beach here and uh you okay. you 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 can't say i mean taking jurisprudence suggests that it's going to be hard to say no you can't because sea level rise is going to happen here in the next forty years um but what Justin suggests that we ought to do is think about a scenario we say, okay, but if you build a house and we have sea level rise, you need to have a bond or whatever in place so that you can actually remove the structure so on and so forth um repair the repair the landscape i'm not exactly sure what details he would Throw in there. He's he's doing it much more at a theoretic level, but um, you know maybe local governments could be useful in doing that. But I I think just getting getting uh, helping people understand how this implicates them most.
0: You know, uh, this is what we, we already do something kind of like this for um, at least some communities have already done this for the problem of abandoned shopping malls. We talked to Sarah Schindler. I don't remember if this came up in our discussion with her earlier uh, in, in I don't the think show's we history talked about it. No but. No, but I mean, this is the kind of thing that people talk about in this area that so be, people build these large shopping malls. Everybody knows this, and then they, and then, you know, whether it's Walmart or Target or something like that. And then maybe 10 or 15 years down the road, they've moved to a nice, shinier, bigger store. Uh, and abandon the other, and it, it's uh, they're ugly, they drag down property values because they're abandoned. You got grass growing up through the cracks, and lots of just pavement. Um, I think they call it the dark star phenomenon, but anyway, uh, so one solution is to require people who want to build these large shopping malls, which we know because we have a lot of history with this will eventually be abandoned in an eyesore to put up a bond for kind of the destruction of them. Like, okay, you can build one of these. We know that eventually they're going to be destroyed. This will not last forever. Put up some money, which will help us to solve this problem when it happens. Um, I don't think this is... I'm trying to think of other areas right now, but, uh, you know... I'd...
1: So so it sounds like what you're both describing is a way to change the price today of the choice you make today uh-huh. to reflect more of its consequences down the road. Do I basically have that right?
0: I think so. What do you think? Yes. yes.
1: And and what I like about that is that um, I think it, it tries to focus on... And there's this little thing we do, Brigham, where Christian will refer to me as Adam Smith which is funny because I'm not um, and in, in no way am I like him, but he likes to call me that because I tend to be a person who does what I'm about to do, which is say, yeah, your hair is different.
0: different yeah, hair. thanks.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, is that, that getting... I mean, one way to get people's attention and focus, even if they don't know all of the issues, in fact, it doesn't really require them to know all the issues, is if you can have prices that reflect all these consequences, people will just make different choices because
0: yeah. they look after their self-interest and um,
1: act accordingly. This uh, is what
0: I was trying to drive out a little bit earlier. Like, is that when you think about the ways that society changes and we're going to need a dramatic change to get on top of this problem, is it enough that people respond to price signals? Um, well, again, whether, was, or, not, yeah, whether
1: okay. or not it's enough, I, I'm even skeptical that we can achieve the right kind of price m- mechanisms uh, in the sense that the appetite for... Well, at least if you put it in terms of new legislation, right? So the and perhaps the best thing the Clean Air Act going has going for it is that it exists. Whereas some of the price mechanisms... Like, for example, if you were to implement a fuel tax that could help, again, people build into their decision-making the kinds of things they ought to be thinking about, and that would affect vehicle purchasing and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, to pass a new tax very hard to do. So the kind of consensus that would permit the tax to exist is if we had that level of consensus, we'd have all kinds of mechanisms that we'd be able to achieve and we can't achieve them, right? So if you look at the gun, if you look at the question of guns and assault rifles and background checks on buying assault rifles, right? Like if, if, hey, Darcy, if, um, if people having to, you know, deal with slaughtered children on the evening news on a fairly regular basis is not enough to get people's attention, Yeah, um, and it appears it isn't, um, right.
0: then it's this is not something that we're going to get fixed. Well, one reasonable suggestion for that, which is very much like what I think Brigham has suggested here, or that he refers to uh, uh, another academic is suggesting, is that uh, you require people to buy insurance for each—just like you do for cars— <laughs> for each gun, right? insurance which is enough to pay for all injuries. Uh, and, you- and
1: I think that's both a great way to build the price of the thing into, right, build the con- build its consequences into its acquisition, right? I think that's a great thing to do. But that takes a kind of political consensus that you know doesn't exist because it's the same lack of consensus yeah. that's causing us to have a difficulty getting all the other mechanisms on the table too.
0: Yeah, and I'm try- trying to say that this is this has been my viewpoint ever since I was kind of indoctrinated in law school into a kind of cost benefit balancing approach, you know, having come from kind of a space before law school that w- I wasn't really into that space but kind of understood the importance of the price signal, the importance of incentives. And uh, as we've been debating, and more recently, my mind has kind of been changing on that. You know, I, I'm not sure that that is the way society changes. It, it's a part of it. But maybe even, maybe it even, in the same way that the Supreme Court, right, um, consolidates social change rather than maybe triggers it, right? I mean, in the same way, maybe, maybe market mechanisms, they can help, I think, with fisheries. They've been hugely successful in part, but this is such a huge and systemic problem and requires such dramatic changes, you just wonder if you need to change minds in more than that way.
2: One of the larger issues that we're going to have to tackle here um, is, you know, what are people willing to give up? Um, And, you know, the problem is with each uh, passing day, um, because this is a stock problem, uh, it becomes more and more difficult. To do something, so I'm mean, I I am encouraged that you know I, I'm encouraged by the latest step by the EPA. Uh, but boy, I, if there's something we could do to to make that happen quicker, uh, we all be better off.
0: Yep, mm. I think that does it. What do you think, Joe? You got anything else to add? No. You got a solution to this problem?
1: No, I actually don't believe. I mean, if you want my honest prediction. Uh, my prediction is that um, the kinds of events that will cause people to reach enough of a consensus to implement measures uh, on a broad enough scale to actually fix the problem—yeah—those um, events will be unfolding when we're already well, well past the point where we can materially affect the trajectory of the problem.
0: Hmm. that's pessimistic.
1: Yes, <laughs> but that's but that's my prediction. Um. So you know, if 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 I were a betting person right now, and there were a way to buy futures in, you know, exobiological exploration for other planets for us to go plunder, <laughs> I think that's a more fruitful thing to explore.
0: Personally. <laughs> oh my gosh!
1: But that's that is where I'm at.
0: I, we can't end this way. We can't. We can't end this way. <laughs>
1: well, I'm sorry. It's. I do. Okay. I, I, I... I I believe we're going to solve this problem. It's just, you just got to roll up that shoulder. Right.
0: Rainbow unicorn power. It's going to solve this problem. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Because, you know, unicorns actually, you know, all their excrescences are beautiful magic powder that solve problems. So that's great.
0: Yeah. It will not be a problem. Everybody can cool their house to 65 degrees in 100 degree climates and heat them up to 80 degrees in negative 20 degree climates. And you can drive 100 miles a day and use as much electricity as you want, no problem, right? if we can find magical powers. Because unicorns. Yeah, something like that. Brigham, what do you think? Do you, are, are you as pessimistic as Joe, or are we going to solve this thing?
2: Uh, I, I, I do believe that we're going to see some substantial progress. Um, whether it's enough, I, I don't know. Um, I think that we've got really two different sorts of problems that we can focus on solving. And one is... Uh, uh, reducing the effect of uh, climate change, which would require reduction of pollution uh, pollutants into the atmosphere. And the other is just preparing for the changes that are coming. Um, and I think that there's a lot that can be done, and we have a lot of time to deal with those. Um, I, I, you know, you, you think about the very worst-case scenarios. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that a lot of those uh we 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 have a lot of opportunity to affect if we end up getting something like 10 feet of climate change uh yeah. sea level rise uh, mm-hmm. you know where people will be living uh 30 40 50 100 years from now and uh, there's there's still
0: some real opportunities um uh, i th- i think one reason for optimism is that some of the uh is that china will be fairly hard hit by the worst scenarios which gives it some incentive as a major player in Carbon emissions to do something. Um, I, I, I don't
2: know if you all saw the um, response. I, it wasn't a response, direct response, but U.S. makes this this step. Uh, the Obama administration makes this proposal this week, and China puts out a press release that says it's thinking about capping its carbon emissions. Um, I mean, I think that they're signaling that they want to do something about this. Um, and you know, if 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 we can, you know again, incremental progress uh, can make really big differences down the road, but again, because this is a stock problem.
0: I'm actually, I, I'm too, and more optimistic uh, than Joe, partly because I think in a few more years, you need another few events. Maybe it may take another Hurricane Sandy or events like that to uh, increase people's taste for intervention. Um, but I think, that will have a simultaneous effect of kind of changing minds. It'll, it'll change the scope of things people can do without being labeled as a jerk and, uh, change our conception of how people can live, um, uh, or, or the boundaries within which we leave our, lead our lives. I mean, people, you know, we're always changing. Like what is a response? What is a responsible American do? Like that definition is always changing and it's different in different subcultures. Sure. But I think there will be a, on with respect to these, um, Variables, you know, climate impact that among across most subcultures that will be a more constrained set, uh, you know, of acceptable behavior, and I think that will follow stories about which are will be increasingly hard to deny about natural disasters and other events which are costing real people real money and lives. So I think that will happen. I think it will be a little bit late. I think we will see. You know, this is the first step of doing something about the problem. I think there'll be more international efforts. We'll be more likely to sign on. And I think we will have to consider, too, some kind of climate engineering. Um, If you really want to solve the problem, and eventually you're going to have to, like, really want to solve the problem. Not just achieve a win for your side. Like, even if you are a committed environmental, it's not enough just to win and have these – the regulations are not a win, right? Right. Winning is like doing something about the problem. I think that will require both dramatic reductions and eventually – perhaps some kind of mitigation efforts and Brigham you mentioned maybe hardening some areas and, and maybe leaving some areas behind along the coast and uh, but perhaps also looking at what we can whether we can intervene in a meaningful way in climate um, so I don't know I guess we'll have to do the show again in 50 years to find out cool what do you think Brigham <laughs> yeah. oh are you still there yeah you're just, I thought we lost you again, but you were just pondering.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm just, you know, you look towards the future. I, I'm much more optimistic now that I know that we've got a date
0: in 50 years. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, Skype will be working better by then. Well, who knows? Maybe we should do it at least every decade, just to benchmark it a little bit. Cool. Yeah, so we'll 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 have you back on. Look, we can we can do it sooner than that. I think you know we sh- certainly should have. <laughs> But at least every decade we should have you on oral argument.
2: I, I, I didn't realize that you told me we were going to be over Skype. Uh, I thought I was going to have uh, – uh, that people would be able to see me. I, I've i been talking this entire time without a shirt on. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 well. but
0: well, that's okay. We do that too. Yeah. It's it's summer down here in Georgia. Oh, my. Can't wear a shirt. <laughs> what, what are you, an animal? You can't wear a shirt in the summer in Georgia, can you? <laughs> I mean, maybe you can get away with pants. Yeah. It's hot out there. <laughs> it's hot out there. I just want everyone out there to know this is
1: why I roll my eyes.